Welcome to Smart Talk. I am Scott Lamar. Now, we're going to be talking about civility in politics today, but I want to play something for you. This is from the third presidential debate uh, between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And I have to warn you ahead of time, it's a little difficult to listen to. I'm just amazed that he seems to think that the Iraqi government and our allies and everybody else launched uh, the attack on Mosul to help me in this election. But that's how Donald thinks, you know. He always is looking for some... we don't gain anything. He has all the Iran is taking over Iraq. Secretary Clinton. And Iran is taking over Iraq. We don't gain Secretary Clinton. We would have gained if they did by surprise. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Secretary Clinton, it's an open he, discussion. He, he Secretary. Says we would have gained now, if they did it by surprise. Secretary, please let Mr. Trump's face. unfit, and he proves it every no. time You are talks. the one that's unfit. Now, this probably comes as no surprise, but a majority of Americans view the 2016 presidential campaign as uncivil. That's according to a Zogby survey on civility in U.S. politics commissioned by Allegheny College. Compared with previous surveys, the survey shows a growing acceptance of what many would consider to be uncivil, like insults, interrupting, we're speaking over someone, uh, their opponent, and also personal attacks. Allegheny College President Dr. James Mullen Jr. is our guest today to talk about the survey. Dr. Mullen, welcome to the program. Scott, it's an honor to be with you. Thank you. If you have a question or a comment about civility in politics, 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Now, I picked that uh, excerpt from the last debate because I thought it was a good example of exactly the questions that you ask, or at least the responses that you got in your survey, that that's hard to listen to. It is hard to listen to, and uh, I think it it does reflect uh, the the findings of our survey. You know, in 2010 at Allegheny, we were concerned about the the state of our public discourse, uh, particularly as a, a liberal arts college that is uh, over 200 years old. Uh, and, and our entire premise as a college is based upon civil discourse around important ideas. And we asked Zogby to take a look at where the nation stood on questions of civility. Uh, and uh, it bore out that there were concerns in the American public about the quality of the national discourse. Uh, in 2016, we asked Zogby to take the same look uh, at the, the state of affairs. And across the board, sometimes by double digits, The public's acceptance of incivility seems to have increased significantly, and I think that's part of a numbing effect that we are seeing because of this kind of uh, uh, discussion that we're seeing at the national level. Uh, There's a very unfortunate stew being played out here uh, of of invective and personal attack and demonization that I think is, uh, is very concerning for the future of our democracy and particularly concerning because I think it will drive young people away from politics. And if that happens, I think we're in a very difficult place. Here's the big question. We're going to talk about uh, some of the results that uh, will raise a few eyebrows. But why do you think it's happening? Again, I think we live in a world of 24-hour news cycles uh, where the Internet drives a good deal of the discussion, not always in a in a civil manner, often in a very uncivil manner. We live in a world of reality TV. Uh, and, and I think when you put it all together and you layer in the, the well-known reality that negative campaigning works, uh, we have uh, seen a level of acceptance, I think, and, and I use the word numbing, of what we, can, what we will accept as uncivil behavior in, in public life. 
And that's not good uh, when, when we almost become numb to uh, what is really a, a gross incivility. Now, you mentioned uh, 2010. Let's go back to 2010 because, you know, one of the, th- the reasons that uh, the survey is so valuable in telling us what the nation is thinking is because the results in 2016 are a lot different than 2010. That's the comparison. So go back to 2010. What was the nation like at that point? Well, I'll give you a couple of examples of what uh, of how the, the survey has changed. Uh, in 2010, 95% of Americans said that civility was critically important to politics and public life. It's now 80%. Uh, 87% said that it was unacceptable to engage in personal attacks against one's opponent. It's now 71%. Uh, it was uh, 83, uh, 73% said that you could, uh, it was not acceptable to question a person's patriotism. It's now 52%. The one that troubles me particularly is 85% of Americans polled said that it was a good thing to pursue friendships across the aisle. That is now 56%. So across the board, we're seeing almost, in many cases, double-digit declines in what is perceived as acceptable. You know, maybe it's a good idea to define civility, and I don't know whether you did that in uh, the survey or not, but how would you define it? Well, I I would take us back to the the core lessons that we try to teach at Allegheny. First of all, it's about respect for individual dignity. Uh, Again, politics is a hard business, and and I'm not looking for a pristine environment. It's a tough tough business. It's a contact sport. Uh, I think anyone who has engaged in the arena has had moments. But when you begin to lack respect for the dignity of an individual, when you begin to demonize your opponent, when you begin to question their character as opposed to their judgment, I think you're crossing into very dangerous territory and, again, leading to this kind of stew of invective that is very dangerous. There are some who would say, and I think that uh, uh, even saying this, you know, there will be people who will say, well, you're choosing one candidate over the other. You must support that. Now, I'm just pointing out that uh, uh, one of the differences between 2016 and 2012, for example, is Donald Trump. And Donald Trump has been probably uh, the most unusual presidential nominee that we've ever had. And there are a lot of people who would say that Trump is the big reason that uh, we have this lack of civility, that uh, his willingness to call names, say Hillary Clinton should be going to jail. And, you know, just to follow up on that, she has fallen in the debate. She did her own personal attacks, but he kind of got things rolling. What about the Trump effect on this? Well, and again, I, I'm, as, as you said earlier, I don't want to uh, in any way uh, take on a partisan position here. That's not what this uh, research has been about. I think that there has been uh, evidence that uh, one candidate in, in this election has adopted a strategy of incivility, uh, of, of attack, of, um, of fighting, as he likes to put it, of, of questioning uh, opponents' uh, character in, some, in many cases. Um, I think, though, that to say that this is all a result of Donald Trump is to... Uh, is to, is to uh, is, is to not take into account that our entire political system is feeling this. Uh, I think that uh, 
while he has adopted, a, I think, a strategy of, of incivility, uh, I think the pr- challenge is wider than that. Just uh, want to go back to uh, some of the numbers, the findings. Uh, when asking the sample about individual candidates, Donald Trump is rated as extremely or very uncivil by 59% of those polled. Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton draws 32% on the same rating. Going back to 2012 um, and before, George W. Bush only drew a 16% rating on his uh, question in presidential losers. Uh, Mitt Romney and John McCain rated 19 and 14% respectively. So there has been a real change in even how the public views the past presidential candidates. I think that's right. It's, it's, it's interesting. We go back even further. Uh, two presidents that were uh, from opposite ends of the political spectrum that uh, are remembered uh, more fondly in terms of civility were John Kennedy and Ronald Reagan. And that comes to a point that I I would like to make as well. Here's a danger we're facing. You know, I'm old enough to remember the end of the Kennedy administration, but I also remember in the years afterwards this sense that politics was noble. It It was a calling. Uh, it was a, a vocation that one should pursue, uh, and there was joy in politics. Uh, and I think, you know, Ronald Reagan uh, uh, gave evidence to that as well. We all remember, you know, Hubert Humphrey, the, the happy warrior, Nelson Rockefeller. There was a time where you could battle in the arena and you could engage in fierce conversation at times and tough politics. But you never went over a line where you lost the joy in politics. Our young people are seeing nothing joyous right now in in the conduct of American politics. I find there is no joy. There is no calling. Mm. Uh, You know, you you mentioned uh, President Kennedy. There are so many people who came of age during the Kennedy administration who will say, especially Democrats, but even Republicans, who will say that they were inspired by President Kennedy and um, even in his inaugural speech, um, that that was their inspiration to get into uh, public service. Uh, I think probably President Reagan had the same impact uh, on, on Republicans. There doesn't seem to be that kind of leadership anymore. Again, we're not being called to uh, the nobility of the arena of, of, of public life in a way that uh, is, is inspiring. I walk a campus every day, Scott, where young people are committed to service. Last year, the 2,000 students of Allegheny College did 70,000 hours of service in the community. They're graduating. They're joining the Peace Corps. They're, they're joining Teach for America. They are committed to make a difference. They're, they're, they're volunteering in nonprofits in their communities, and that is wonderful. But when I talk to them about entering politics, entering public life, taking their promise and potential and going into public life, I don't feel that same energy. So where, how does this play out in the years to come? I fear we're going to lose a generation of young people to politics. And given what you played and given what we're, we've seen in in the conduct of politics, uh, the gridlock that occurs now in Washington. Uh, I, you know, unfortunately, I can't blame them. When you talk to young people, people on campus, your students, who does inspire them? Who are some of the people that do, do inspire them? Oh, I think the people who inspire them are, are local nonprofit leaders, you know. Uh, uh, folks who are making a difference in communities inspire them. Uh, uh, individuals who are, 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 
you know, leading in, in, in public life in different ways inspire them. Um, they look for inspiration. Uh, and hopefully what we're trying to do here through the Allegheny Prize for Civility and Public Life is offer them examples of people who in a moment or across their careers have, have conducted themselves the right way and have offered an inspiring example. That's one reason that over the next year we want to create a Pennsylvania Prize for Civility and Public Life close to home. Allegheny, so much a part of Pennsylvania for two centuries, we want to offer uh, examples in the Commonwealth of individuals who have conducted their lives in public life, be it in journalism, elective office, in a way that young people can find inspiration. Well, let's talk about the prize because you just announced uh, publicly for the first time, as far as I know, uh, <laughs> about a, a state prize. But go back. Tell us about uh, the Civility Prize. Uh, and this is when you were just uh, considering national. That's right. It was in it was in the time frame of 2010, as we had conducted our first polling with Zogby, uh, that we know you know we noted that. There are many examples of incivility. Those receive a great deal of coverage. Uh, we wanted to shine the light on people who were doing it right, who were going to offer that kind of an inspiring example to young people to to conduct uh, to enter public life and that and and conduct their lives in a way that is is civil and productive and respectful. So you know, we started in uh, uh, our first prize uh, five years ago with uh, David Brooks and Mark Shields, because uh, journalists are in the arena, and they set the tone in many ways. You know, and every week on National Public Radio, here are two individuals, one from the left, one from the right, who, who respectfully discuss the issues of the day. We thought that was a perfect way to begin it. And in subsequent years, uh, either for, again, a moment in time or Across their career, we've offered the we've offered the prize to the twenty women of the uh, United States Senate. You may recall that they, when the government was not functioning at all, they intervened and, and brokered a, an end across the aisle. Uh, last year, we honored uh, Vice President Biden and Senator McCain for a friendship that has extended across three decades. You cannot be more different in terms of their partisan politics. But it's a friendship that has grown and and has extended uh, through 30 years and has led to productive politics. And I think we all remember the moment in time when uh, Senator McCain in 2008 took the microphone from a, a person who was questioning in a very uncivil manner uh, President Obama, then Senator Obama. And he said, no, ma'am, no, ma'am. He's a fine American. We've we've got to remember those moments, and those are the moments that young people will look at and say, "Yeah, you know what? Um, that calls me because I can do it." I know my son uh, has followed the, the prize. He's now a freshman in college, and he's interested in public life because he's seen these examples. and uh, And I hope others have as well. We'll talk about Pennsylvania in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. 
Our guest during this portion of the program is Allegheny College President Dr. James Mullen, Jr. We were talking about a Zogby survey on civility and U.S. politics commissioned by Allegheny College has some startling results, and we've just mentioned a few of them, but we'll talk about a, a few more. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. I just mentioned Facebook, and I, I think I have to bring up, you had mentioned earlier about the impact, the influence of today's technology. But what about social media? I have to say that uh, even amongst the people I'm friend with, friends with on Facebook, that some of the, the uh, I don't know, the, the name calling, the you must be dumb if you think this. You're evil. You know, it, it is just it, it's un, it's incredible. Yeah, and I think what can happen, Scott, is also you you begin to get into a bit of an echo chamber where you you're only talking to those uh, who share your point of view and you feed off of each other. Uh, you were asking earlier uh, what how you define civility. I think one important component of civility is a certain humility in that we will listen to others. Uh, who don't necessarily agree with us, but we will see value in that conversation and and value in the in the engagement. I think, unfortunately, some of what we see on social media is uh, folks who share a similar position, uh, sort of creating a, uh, a hyperspeed in their in their sense of of what of their rightness and their correctness, and uh, and that's unfortunate. And then what is real news versus what is uh, opinion, what is fact versus what is rumor, all of that plays in. We have an email here from Eugene. It says, the incivility we're seeing in the highly visible presidential campaign is really a reflection of the incivility in society at large as seen in online conversation, particularly social media. I have even stopped reading comments to online NPR news because they consistently degenerate to incivility within two or three responses. I have to say that, uh, you know, many of the media sites, if you look at the comments afterwards, he's right. It doesn't take long to all of a sudden, I mean, you, it, within two or three responses, you lose sight of the original article and it becomes personal and a whole lot worse sometimes. You know, I think we're all trying to figure out, uh, and, I, and I respect you and others and who have tried to take a leadership role in this in the media, how do you have discussion? Uh, how do you have reflective discussion, which also includes disagreement, but not questioning character, not demonizing uh, it's uh, it, the the rules. The rules seem to be shifting on us here, and I think that's what the survey shows. Mm -hmm. Let's get back to the state prize, the Allegheny College Civility Prize here in Pennsylvania. Uh, you talked about it a little bit, but why did you decide to uh, create? I guess this is creating a second prize. Yes, I think uh, again. Uh, we're very rooted in Pennsylvania. Uh, we are a national liberal arts college. We have a national platform, uh, and, and we believe the, the National Allegheny Prize is, is serving that. But, you know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't point out uh, one of the, the great champions of civility and one of the great champions of our prize is former Governor Tom Ridge, who has, uh, I think, set the highest example of civility in his career and is very committed to our cause. And it's reminded us, I think, that, again, we are very rooted as, a, as an institution that's been in Pennsylvania for 200 years. 
we would like to shine the light on those in the Commonwealth that are are, are, are conducting themselves the right way and are giving us examples that could inspire. Uh, I think that's very important. And, and obviously the, the rich political tradition of Pennsylvania, I think we can have a I think there can be some fun in identifying those individuals as well. Let's go to the phone. Jennifer is in Harrisburg. Jennifer, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. Um, delivering magazines today with my boyfriend and listening to the program. We do this once a month. And I just wanted to make a comment about um, what you guys are discussing. Um, you know, it came to mind when you guys were talking about Clinton and Trump that the character of these two people, we have somebody who's being investigated by the FBI. The other person is obviously a misogynist and a racist. And these are our two candidates. These are the people that are debating nationally. We really expect them to be decent to each other. When these are the morals that these two people um, have, morals, um, you know, on behalf of Trump and Clinton being in, investigated by the FBI, mm-hmm. not once, like twice, three times. What do we really expect from them? All right. <laughs> Thank you very much for your call. Well, uh, you know, I, I don't think we're going to comment on, uh, you know, let uh, Jennifer, uh, her stand alone with her, her comments. But I think that, you know, the point that she makes is one that uh, very many people do have in this country is that uh, we have flawed candidates. We have two in the major parties. We have two candidates who are flawed. In fact, I know you've heard it. I've heard it many times. Is this the best that we can do during this this election cycle? Well, I th- I would I would probably flip that just a little bit. Um, and again, I will leave to individuals uh, how they uh, how they sort out uh, where they, they 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 end up voting. I think that how we treat one another in an election is is also important. And I think that uh, you know you played a clip where I, I think there was incivility that was evident. I think across uh, the nation. There is incivility in the way candidates uh, conduct themselves, treating each other. You know, there was a wonderful ad that uh, is getting a great deal of uh, Facebook attention now uh, from a race in Texas. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, I was struck in two ways. One, that it was a great political ad. It was very funny. Very funny. two... I was struck that I hadn't seen one that civil in I don't know how long. Yeah. And 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 uh, so I think you know beyond uh, the, the the perceived or, or real uh, flaws of candidates, I still think that we don't have to intensify all of this by demonizing the the other person. I I, I think that's very unfortunate. Yeah, the, the ad that uh, you're referring to. It's, I believe it's a state legislature uh, yeah. race that uh, it, it's it's very funny. The candidate is seen talking with people constantly about issues, and his wife says uh, something like, please reelect him to get him out of the That's house or something right. like that, because he does this all the time. And uh, you're, you're right. That is very funny. You know, one of the things that's so striking, though, is not just the top of the ticket. Um, I mean, this has made its way down to the underballot, uh, you know, in the Senate races, the Congress, even on the state house level. We had a debate here last week that, uh, and I've hosted many debates, and probably would say that this is a state Senate race, one of the most contentious debates that I've ever been involved with. Um, but even the people who are attending these rallies, uh, I mean, we've heard of violence at some of them. Uh, you know, at the Trump rallies, we hear go to jail. You know, that Hillary Clinton should be in jail. 
you know, and people on the Hillary side talking about Trump and, you know, talking so hateful about him. I mean, this has come made its way down to the electorate. Sure it has. And, and I would have a, a couple of observations on that. Number one, Scott, you and I follow politics and have our entire life and and uh, I'm a I can barely watch it right now. So if you and I are struggling with it, what is the person uh, what is the person who doesn't have our historic passion for it doing? That's not healthy. You know, the, the, the second thing I would do is this is that ugly stew that I referred to earlier. Uh, you, you can go very quickly from uh, delegitimizing your opponent to delegitimizing the entire process. And that's a very dangerous road to go down for American democracy. You know, one of the things that many people have pointed to with Donald Trump that, and the word frightening has been used, is him questioning uh, the legitimacy of uh, the election. That, you know, there are people saying that this is questioning our democracy as a whole, that uh, really, I mean, here's a candidate, maybe in the first time in the history of the country, that a presidential candidate said that if I lose, it's because she cheated. Um, I mean, that if that was just the one thing that would probably be a headline that we'll remember forever with this election. Well, I would I would simply say on that that you know, despite the fact it's worked well in our country uh, for as long as it has, democracy is a fragile instrument, and the minute you start to questioning the legitimacy of, of democratic uh, institutions, of transfers of power, uh, you're getting into some very, uh, I think, dangerous ground. And uh, I think we should all take pause as that happens. So what's the answer? I mean, what do we do to get back to those days when people did reach across the aisle? And you, you during a break, you joked about, uh, you know, people having drinks and dinner and, uh, you know, they they disagree, but they do it in a, a friendly manner. I mean, that, that that seems like a time that is just almost like an antique nowadays. I mean, could we ever get back to that? I hope so. And I, my great hope is the young people I see every day. This generation uh, has, a, has an idealism about it. I think that it wants to see things happen. It wants our country to succeed and do well, and it wants our democracy to thrive. If we can keep shining the light on that and on people who share that commitment and who have brought it to national service uh, and to community service uh, in, in the public arena... I find hope, but it's going to be this next generation that uh, that that needs to pick up the the baton and carry it. Dr. James Mullen Jr. is the president of Allegheny College, and you'll be speaking with the Pennsylvania Press Club today. I understand. Looking forward. So to we'll it. be hearing much more about this, Dr. Mullen. Thank you very much for being with Scott, us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. All right, we're talking about uh, civility and politics, but uh, this presidential campaign has had no shortage of, uh, of controversies along the way. One of the latest occurred during the third debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and uh, the Iraqi offensive on Mosul. And I want to play a clip from uh, this week with uh, George Stephanopoulos uh, from ABC, where George Stephanopoulos is talking with uh, Donald Trump about that uh, Mosul offensive. 
Let's talk about Mosul. On Sunday, you sent out a tweet saying that the operation was a total disaster. The defense secretary is on the ground. He says they're making progress. He's encouraged by the progress. The former dean of the Army War College says this shows that Trump doesn't know a damn thing about military strategy. The Army War College, let me tell you, the element of surprise. I've been hearing about Mosul now for three months. We're going to attack, we're going to attack, meaning Iraq's going to attack, but with us, okay? We're going to attack. Why do they have to talk about it? Don't talk about it. Element of surprise. General George Patton. You look at General George Patton, you look at, uh, you look at MacArthur, you look at these great generals, and I say it all the time, they're spinning in their grave. We had Mosul. We have to take it because Hillary Clinton and Obama left that big vacuum and ISIS went in and they took she Mosul. Says but here's the other problem. Wait, the wait, let, me, let me finish with Mosul. Element of surprise. One of the reasons they wanted Mosul, they wanted to get the ISIS leaders who they thought were in, in Mosul. Those people have all left. As soon as they heard they're going to be attacked, they left. The resistance the is... says 35 of them have been taken out. Excuse me. The resistance is much greater now because they knew about the attack. Why can't they win first and talk later? Why do they have to say three months before the attack, we're going in? So you can tell your military expert that I'll sit down and I'll teach him a couple of things. Well, that military expert is with us today. Colonel Jeffrey McCausland is a former head of the U.S. Army War College and a consultant on CBS. He also teaches at Dickinson College. Colonel McCausland, welcome to the program. Hey, Scott. It's a great pleasure with you. All right. So uh, Donald Trump said he's going to teach you a few things. What's your response to that? Well, I've said a number of times uh, with my work at CBS and elsewhere that I look forward to the opportunity for Donald Trump to teach me uh, anything about military strategy, and I'd be happy to compare my, my 45 years working in uh, national security strategy, military strategy, with his anytime you'd like. What did he get wrong when he said that? Because uh, he said this during the debate too, that uh, uh, you know we lost the element of surprise by announcing our plans to. When he say "are," this was really an Iraqi operation with uh, you know ad- advisors, American advisors as well. That we lost that element of surprise. What did he get wrong? Well, first of all, I mean, throughout the campaign, even back to the primary campaign, I believe Mr. Trump has shown that he knows nothing about military strategy. We can get back to the other points if you wish later. But as far as Mosul goes, to begin with, I mean, there's a political imperative. You know, there's an old comment by a very famous strategist, Karl von Clausewitz, that war is politics by other means. So when ISIS occupied Mosul in 2014, second largest city in Iraq, there was a political imperative to recover that city for the Iraqi government. So Prime Minister Abadi has been reassuring his population continuously that that was, in fact, going to occur. And as the campaign to rid uh, Iraq of ISIS has continued, and they've pushed him out of Ramadi, pushed him out of Fallujah, pushed him out of Tikrit, it became increasingly obvious that the final place, the final push, was going to be Mosul, again, because of its size and political significance. So that was clearly being done. That was clearly being broadcast because of that political imperative. Second of all, of course, uh, several million leaflets were dropped over the city of Mosul for the civilian population. We've got to keep in mind there's about a million people, civilians, in the city of Mosul right now. So providing them that information in advance was to, A, reassure them we were going to liberate them, B, provide them some information on what they should do to safeguard themselves and their families. Then thirdly, of course, when you're talking 30 to 40,000 troops that have got to be massed for an offensive like this, and you're going to position them out in the desert because desert is largely what surrounds Mosul, it's going to be pretty doggone hard to, uh, to uh, mask that that's about to happen. I mean, 
it didn't take a genius in the German army in 1944 to know that the Allies were going to invade France. They knew we were coming. That's why they built lots of beach net defenses. Mr. Trump also mentions George Patton. Well, George Patton's job prior to the invasion was to command a shadow army uh, that looked, looked like it was making preparations for the invasion while other forces were preparing to go into Normandy. So he, he was actually part of that. The operational surprise, the tactical surprise of exactly where, how you were going to maneuver, that's a different equation. But the military strategy, the grand strategy, is, was still pretty obvious that we were going into France. In similar fashion, in the Pacific, by the time we got around to it, Japanese knew we were coming to Iwo Jima, and they knew we were coming to Okinawa there towards the end of that campaign, and they fortified those islands, uh, not unlike ISIS has done in Mosul. So when Trump talks about uh, surprise, the element of surprise, uh, there are only so many things. What you're saying is there are only so many things that can be surprised, that can be hidden. Exactly. There's, it's a matter of strategic surprise and then operational and tactical surprise. Okay, there's no way I think that you're going to achieve strategic surprise in this particular context. And part of that is because of that political imperative. You've got you to keep reassuring your population that you are, in fact, uh, going t- to do this, uh, but precisely when and where, perhaps. So this whole business that we're not going to talk about it, and somehow ISIS is going to be surprised after we liberate every other city uh, in Iraq, I think it's fanciful. Our guest during this portion of the program is Colonel Jeffrey McCausland. He's the former head of the U.S. Army War College, a consultant on CBS. He also teaches at Dickinson College. Uh, and I hate to use the word spat, but I know that's how the media has been uh, terming uh, your disagreement with D- Donald Trump over military strategy. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that number is 1-800-729-7532. And I should say, uh, Colonel McCausland, that the uh, this is not meant to be, uh, you know, having this segment of the program is not meant to uh, just be critical of uh, Donald Trump. But that's what the, the the issue is. You went back and you said that uh, uh, throughout the primary season that you heard uh, Donald Trump say some things that uh, you questioned his knowledge of military strategy. Uh, what particular did you question? Well, that's a very important point, Scott, because this particular spat, I don't like that word much either, uh, is just the latest in what I thought was a series of comments by Mr. Trump throughout the primary and the actual general election that has shown his lack of any knowledge about military strategy. And we can go all the way back to the primary where, uh, where it was clear in one of the debates with Republicans that uh, Senator Rubio asked him a question about the nuclear triad, and it was very clear Mr. Trump didn't know, I don't think he even knew what Senator Rubio was talking about. And that has, of course, to do with our land-based missiles, submarines, and bombers, which is the essence of our nuclear strategy, probably the most important thing a president needs to know uh, something about. Uh, he has gone on to say things like, well, you know, if he gets to be commander-in-chief, we're going to do uh, torture and waterboarding, and we're going to kill the families of terrorists and all kinds of things like that, which actually are violations of international law. And in private conversation with many of my friends still in uniform, they're, they're aghast, and they would have to probably say, refuse those orders, we could see a, a, a crisis of civil-military relations. Now, then, then he's gone on to say, you know, what we really need to do in Iraq was take back the oil, take back the oil. He said that repeatedly. Well, it, it boggles the mind to imagine how many troops it would take to seize all the Iraqi oil fields 
and how many casualties we'd suffer in holding those oil fields. Because I dare say, I, I cannot believe 26 million Iraqis would stand idly by while we looted their country of their only uh, precious uh, resource. And furthermore, that also would be a violation of international law. And then even if we did that, how many troops it would take and how many casualties we would suffer to protect the pipelines to move that oil out where it would have any value to us. Uh, So for all those reasons and several more, uh, that's why this latest little episode happened, and and I conclude that he didn't know a whole lot about military strategy. We had a phone call here, uh, Lyndon Hollowstown. She didn't want to stay on the air, but she brings up a point that uh, there actually have been some people in the military, or at least rumors, I guess you would say. I don't know whether anyone has come out publicly and said this, that uh, some of these uh, things that uh, Trump has talked about that you just uh, listed— that they wouldn't follow that order, that uh, you would have a situation where the military may not uh, follow the orders of the commander-in-chief. Is that a real possibility? I think it truthfully is, and many senior retired officers like me have pointed that out. You know, I mean, we Americans have a tradition of civil-military relations, which we don't talk about too much, but it's something, you know, we should cherish. We're one of the few governments, few democracies, on this planet, that the military has never threatened to take control of civil government. Uh, even in Britain, I used to live there, and a British friend of mine used to joke, you know, they call it the Royal Air Force and the Royal Navy, but it's the British Army, because during the British Civil War, Oliver Cromwell and his people chopped the king's head off. Uh, but we've never had that problem. Um, I think what Mr. Trump also needs to do is look at the Constitution, where the military uh, swears to defend the Constitution not the president, the constitution uh, of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and military officers repeat that oath every time they get promoted and, and think about it a great deal. Because he has also suggested when pointed out to him that officers might not follow these orders, well, he just gets a new general, uh, which to me is a rather chilling comment when you think about American civil-military relations. Well, I have to say, when you use the word chilling, I mean, the whole thing you're describing here of, uh, you know, the military leadership maybe not following the the orders of the commander-in-chief and, uh, you know, because of just what you described is rather frightening in itself. Absolutely, and, and, and unprecedented. We, we, have, we have never had that. I mean, furthermore, Mr. Trump and has been reported to have said several times, well, you know, if we have nuclear weapons, why, why can't we use them? You know, why can't we use them? Uh, and I think people need to understand that the way uh, our nuclear authority is vested in the commander-in-chief, he or she, uh, has that ultimate decision. And really, there is no check on that, um, because the amount of time that a president might have to respond to a major strategic attack on the United States might only be a matter, matter of moments. And there's an interesting book out called Command and Control, which talks about throughout the Cold War on both the U.S. and the Soviet side, several times where accidents nearly caused us to do terrible things involving our nuclear weapons. So uh, a military officer might be ordered to do that, and that's why it's very important that our president understands that. And then furthermore, some of these things that he might order, we might see the military refuse to do. Let's take some phone calls. Bill is in Lancaster. Bill, you're on the air. Good morning, Scott Good morning, and Colonel. Bill. <clears throat> Bill. Comments about uh, that have been made by our esteemed Republican candidate kind of harken back to some of the past leaders that have been brilliant 
generals, uh, Adolf Hitler and Saddam Hussein are the first two that spring to mind. And the idea of the number of people, as you say, that uh, he is talking about to take over the oil harkens back to Mr. Rumsfeld and General Shinseki and the number to pacify Iraq, which Mr. Rumsfeld was totally wrong about. Mm. Hey, thank you very much for your call, Bill. The point he's making, uh, you know, with uh, some civilian leaders who uh, took a major, major role in military strategy, uh, and I, I think we can go back even further. Uh, during the Civil War, some of the worst leaders that uh, we had were those who were the generals who were politically appointed. Now, I don't know about I mean, Lincoln was very involved in uh, in, in strategy, but and he, and he had a hard time finding uh, a general, a commander uh, of the Union Army. But the point that Bill's making, what about that and a political leadership and when they get involved in military strategy? But we've seen in most cases where the military and civilian authority working close together and hand in hand with great respect to the Constitution has been the recipe for our success. Um, Lincoln, I think, was brilliant in when he arrived in the presidency. I don't think he knew a great deal about military affairs either, but spent an awful lot of time schooling himself. And it was his his focal point on the Confederate Army, telling his generals, "Don't get too hung up about Richmond. If we destroy the Confederate Army, we can go to." Richmond, any old time we feel like it, uh, really changed the character of what that, those campaigns uh, were, were all about. Uh, so I think that's where the success is, is when those two sides can work together and the military can provide particularly operational tactical advice as civilian authority have got to look longer term with a strategic vision that is tied to the political imperatives and the national interests of the country. You know, we may have some people listening this morning saying, well, what does Abraham Lincoln, what does the Civil War, what does World War II have to do with today's uh, military, with the, the situation around the world at all? Well, that's one of the things that you do at the U.S. Army War College is use history as examples for fighting today's wars. And, you know, that first comment that uh, Donald Trump made to uh, George Stephanopoulos, he says, oh, the Army War College, like, uh, somehow there was some disrespect there as well. But just talk about that a, a little bit, that there are lessons from the past that can be applied to today's world, right? Absolutely. I mean, there's an old, perhaps trite phrase, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And we look for those patterns that one may find to be uh, instructive. Actually, the War College was formed after the Spanish-American War, and due in large measure to the fact that though we've been militarily successful, it, it was really a pretty, pretty bad-to-run campaign, very poorly supported in many ways. And uh, Elihu Root, who was Secretary of War, uh, convinced the uh, president at the time to form the Army War College. And, and it really is to take successful military officers at the tactical and operational level and make them comfortable at the strategic level where things become a lot more complex and closure to problems aren't necessarily where you end up, but you just manage a huge, big problem, such as the strategic relationship between the United States and the Russian Federation, for example. But one of the essence of that strategy, I think, is a couple of things. One, one I've mentioned before, war is politics by other means. What are, the, what are the national interests of the United States, and how can the military instrument best move the nation in that direction? Second of all, of course, that the military instrument is only one instrument, and actually has worried me for the last decade, that we seem to think that the military is the solution to every problem overseas. 
when in reality, if you look back at Iraq when we were there, you know, and I was there four or five times, and in Afghanistan as well, it was how we integrate the military instrument, the the diplomatic instrument, the political instrument, the economic instrument, now more and more in this age, the informational instrument, how we integrate all those into a grand strategy is is the best chance we're going to have to be successful and move policy in the direction that's in the best interest of the American people. Let's take a call from Dave in Lemoyne. Dave, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. I I think the previous caller sort of stole my thunder, but I I wanted to comment on the the, the statement about uh, changing all the generals. And when I first heard that, I, I, I had the question: Is that something even that a that a that a commander in chief or president would be able to do? I mean, it sounds like Caesar in the Praetorian Guard or something. And so maybe you could you could mention something about about the legality of doing something like that, because that's something like a fascist dictator would do. Dave, thank you very much for your call, Colonel. What about that? Well, of course, we have to understand that, you know, we operate in a system of laws, the Constitution being fundamental, and we also operate under international law and treaties. And if you read the Constitution of Supremacy Clause, it will tell you that treaties are the supreme law of the land along with the Constitution. And that's why it's very important to presidents to understand that and abide by that. You know, we've seen, again, some disturbing comments, frankly. He said he admires Vladimir Putin. He admires, he even said he admired Saddam Hussein. Uh, you know, adding quickly, and I think it's only fair because he said, you know, quote unquote, Saddam Hussein killed killed terrorists. Uh, and while that's probably true to some degree, he he killed an awful lot of Kurds. Uh, when I commanded the battalion during the Gulf War back in 1990-91, he was massacring the Shiite population across the river from where my unit was. Uh, so it's those kind of things, and the belief that. It seems that if I get to be president, then I have sort of indiscriminate authority to do whatever, whatever I, I please is a real matter of concern, particularly in the complex environment we are now where, you know, we, don't, we haven't declared war. Uh, consequently, it becomes a lot more of a very, very le- serious legal question at times of how to employ the military instrument. And I can tell you from my time working in the White House back and even in the Clinton administration, that was a matter of grave concern and the involvement of an awful lot of, of uh, international lawyers to ensure that we, the United States, stayed within what we construed to be proper legal authority. You know, I've heard a lot of uh, Trump supporters say that uh, one of the things they're confident in is that if Donald Trump is elected, that he will surround himself with good people. What do you think of uh, the people he has advising him militarily? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't want to name names. I'm worried got him enough trouble already with Donald Trump. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I will have to say this, and that is that because of my work with CBS News, um, I've been trying for the last four or five months to ascertain uh, who are the people advising him on national security affairs. There were, I think it was 80 or 90 generals that did, in fact, endorse him. Um, but having worked in these areas in Washington uh, for, for many, many years, I have not been able to ascertain more than a handful uh, that I think have the experience. You know, I've been working at the national level, uh, Pentagon, White House, State Department, uh, where they could take up, you know, positions of, of great responsibility. And also, I mean, it, to me, back to this whole thing of national military strategy and Donald Trump, it was amazing to me, and now even overlooked, that about 100 national security experts, all Republicans, really the brain trust 
of the Republican Party in national security affairs and people that I've known for decades and really admire, they repeated they repeated to him last March. So goodness knows, um, goodness knows um, uh, who would actually populate this particular this particular administration. Hey, let's try to get another call in. Uh, Davis in Lemoyne, you're uh, on the air. Hello. Well, I guess uh, we don't have him uh, on the air any any longer. All right, so you joined uh, a long and distinguished list of people that uh, Donald Trump has targeted for ridicule during his campaign. Uh, actually, the New York Times made a list and said that the, there are 282 people, places, and things that Trump has insulted just on Twitter. So you're one of those targets. How's that feel? Do you take it personally or wear it as a badge of honor or is this too important? Oh, I, I take it as a badge of honor. I mean, uh, personally, um, I am nonpartisan. I work for CBS News. I'm an independent, and that's where I'd like to look at it. But, you know, to be on the same group of people as such as the, the father of this um, young captain who was killed fighting in Iraq, and uh, it's just without a doubt an honor, and I'm humbled by that. Uh, you know, and once again, for Mr. Trump to make the comment that you know, he's made sacrifices that were the equivalent of that family um, while getting four draft deferments back during Vietnam. And I'm, I'm an old guy, so I lived through Vietnam. Uh, to me, it's just astonishing. Uh, Colonel, we only have about a minute or so left. But if you had an oppor- the opportunity to sit down with Donald Trump, what would the conversation be like? What would you say to him? Well, first of all, I doubt Mr. Trump would want to, want to talk to me, A, and B, if he did, he'd want to lecture me rather than listen to me. So we got to get through a couple of hoops to start with. But I, but I would simply say, you know, if you're going to assume the mantle of this enormous responsibility, it is imperative that you have a full understanding of some of the basics of national security affairs, particularly surrounding the use of nuclear weapons. And second of all, you need to make sure you fully understand not only the powers you have as the president of the United States, which are enormous, but the limits that you have as president of the United States operating in a free democracy. Mm. You don't think that conversation will ever happen? I hope it does. I'd be delighted to, and I'd be delighted to listen to him tell me why he doesn't think I know too much about this. But I, I, I think um, he seems very busy working on his lawsuits against 11 women. I don't think he's going to have time to talk to me. <laughs> Had to get that in. <laughs> Colonel Jeff McCausland is the former head of the U.S. Army War College, a consultant with CBS, also teaches at Dickinson College. Uh, Colonel, always enjoy having you on the program. Thank you very much. Thanks, Scott. And, uh, yeah, Colonel McCausland, uh, remember we uh, spoke with him uh, Gettysburg uh, a few months ago uh, talking about uh, leadership and uh, leadership in business and how military uh, leadership can be translated to that type of leadership. WYTF's election 26 coverage is supported by the Harrisburg office of the law firm of Saul Ewing LLP. And we have just about eight days before Election Day and uh, just a few more members of Congress, or I should say candidates for Congress to talk to here on Smart Talk. Two more on tomorrow's program.